The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 80. This is Employment Law Now, and I am still Mike Schmidt, your host of this podcast and the Vice Chair of our Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. Well, we are here in November of 2020. It has been a heck of a year, um, and who knows how long all of the challenges of this year will continue to go on. We are also one day away from Election Day, a very big Election Day with all kinds of consequences. Stay tuned right here because we will have in the upcoming days some good analysis about the election. Hopefully we'll have the results of those in the next couple of days, but uh, who knows how that will play out. But we will have some election analysis coming up uh, in the next few days on this podcast. But for this episode, I want to talk about a really important issue when it comes to policies and practices of employers. Very often employers when they're creating policies, procedures, employee handbooks, or employee manuals, much of the focus is on those policies and procedures that directly or indirectly address harassment, discrimination, and retaliation in the workplace. Obviously very important issues, obviously critical to have policies and procedures in place to address those issues. And included in that is making sure that there is an established complaint procedure for those individuals to raise concerns if they feel as if they've been the victim or they know someone else has been the victim of harassment, discrimination, and retaliation. In fact, federal law in many cases even provides a limited defense for employers who can show that they had a complaint procedure and that the employee never utilized that complaint procedure when claiming to be aggrieved. What often gets overlooked, however, is the value, if not the necessity, in creating a complaint procedure not just for EEO issues, but also for wage and hour issues. Two recent developments that I wanted to highlight today serve as evidence of that premise. That's particularly true during this continued COVID-19 pandemic when so many more employees continue to telework which means that so many employers continue to have less control, less awareness, less notice of the number of hours that employees are working or claim to be working. It's a common situation. An employee claims that he or she worked X number of hours. The employer says, well, wait a second, you weren't scheduled to work that number of hours or you didn't have approval to work that number of hours and the employer doesn't want to pay because the hours worked were either not scheduled or not approved. It's really important to understand with some exceptions though very few if you are having a policy about what work hours need to be scheduled or what work hours need to be approved You can, in most instances as a company, discipline an employee for violating that policy up to and including termination of employment. 
Where you do really want to be careful, though, is making a decision not to pay those employees for unscheduled or unapproved time. So what is a company supposed to do? How can it, short of performance management and discipline, how can a company make sure that it is tracking the number of hours that an employee is working and, at the end of the day, ultimately compensating accurately for the hours worked by the employee? That's where some sort of complaint policy or mechanism comes into place. First recent development I want to talk about, the Department of Labor, the United States Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division uh, Administrator, Cheryl Stanton, recently issued a news release that speaks to this very issue. At the top of the news release were some really interesting quotes, I think. Quote, due to the coronavirus pandemic, more Americans are teleworking and working variable schedules than ever before to balance their jobs with a myriad of family obligations, such as remote learning for their children and many others. This has presented unique challenges to employers with regard to how to track work time accurately. End quote. The news release goes on. Quote, today's guidance is one more tool the wage and hour division is putting forward to ensure that workers are paid all the wages they have earned and that employers have all the tools they need as they navigate what may, for many, be uncharted waters of managing remote workers, end quote. It's fascinating because government agencies, particularly on the federal level, do not always issue guidance or news releases setting forth rules or policies in response to every single changed condition out there, economic or otherwise. So obviously in recognition that the pandemic and the challenges facing employers and employees in the course of the pandemic, particularly in this case with regard to telework, was so important an issue that, again, the Wage and Hour Division saw fit to issue this guidance. And what was the nature of the guidance, you might ask? I'm glad you did. So the Wage and Hour Division's news uh, release said that in a telework situation, the question of an employer's obligation to track hours that were actually worked may often arise because, as I said at the top of this episode, employers may not always be in control of or aware of what hours an employee is working. And when employees are working at home and they may have other obligations, child, family, or other types of obligations, you may not have a continuous workday from 9 to 5 or 10 to 6 that are solely dedicated to work. So how do you accurately track that and how then can an employer make sure it's accurately compensating its employees? Well, the Department of Labor reiterates the general rule that employers are obligated to pay for all hours that are worked that it knows about or that the employer has reason to know about. Even if it was not requested, even if it was not even authorized, if the employee is engaging in work that is benefiting the company in some respects and the employer either was actually aware of it or had reason to be aware of it, in those cases, employers must pay for all of those, those hours. The flip side is also true, the Wage and Hour Division reminds us. If there is no actual knowledge of unscheduled or unapproved work being performed, and if the employer should not have had any reason to be aware of that unscheduled or unapproved time worked, then the employer is not required to compensate for those hours. 
That then begs the question that the Department of Labor was trying to address in this news release. How do you determine whether the employer knew or should have known of those hours worked? Well, to the Wage and Hour Division, the question becomes one of reasonable diligence. How much reasonable diligence did the employer engage in? And one way that the Wage and Hour Division cites uh, as being an example of an employer exercising reasonable diligence is if the employer established a reasonable reporting procedure for non-scheduled or unapproved time and then compensates the employees for all reported hours of work, even if that work was not, again, requested, scheduled, or approved. So if there is an established procedure by the employer and the employee then fails to report unscheduled or unapproved hours worked through that reasonable reporting procedure, then the employer is not required to compensate for those hours because, again, an established procedure and the employee's inability or refusal to take advantage or avail himself or herself of that reporting procedure. So that's the Department of Labor coming out recently and talking about the importance of having some complaint mechanism established by the employer. Here's a second one. The case is called Marshall versus Novant Health, Inc. It is a case that was filed in federal court in the Western District of North Carolina for those who are keeping score at home. I know many people don't necessarily think of North Carolina as a hotbed of wage and hour litigation, but this case I think is an important one. It involves a relatively common claim that the company has an automatic deduction policy for lunch breaks. In other words, the company for all of its employees requires its employees to take a 30-minute lunch break and automatically deducts 30 minutes each day on the time clock for the lunch break that it requires employees to take. In this case, like so many others, the plaintiff claims that he actually worked during the lunch break and wasn't paid for it. Therefore, the automatic deduction policy inaccurately recorded the full hours that were worked and therefore the plaintiff and other similarly situated employees were not paid for all of their hours worked. And that's actually what makes these cases even more challenging, right? In the wage and hour context, we know that so many of these cases are brought on behalf of a class of employees, on behalf of a collective group of employees, not just a single plaintiff. The court, however, rejected the plaintiff's claims in this case. And it's worth highlighting a couple of quotes here as well. The court stated, quote, Marshall, the plaintiff, has failed to present evidence that there was no way for her to record a meal break that is less than 30 minutes. Further, the court noted, quote, there was no evidence to support the argument that the company prevented Marshall from recording and being paid for interrupted meal breaks. And in fact, there was evidence that employees were even directed by the employer to use a no-lunch code in the time clock if that employee missed a meal break. So because the employer had established a mechanism for employees who actually worked through their meal breaks, even though that was not what the employer wanted them to do, and if the employee then failed to avail herself of that procedure, 
Well, the employee then was not entitled to come back and claim that the employer violated the law by failing to pay for all hours worked. Again, wage and hour laws unquestionably can be traps for the unwary. I always refer to it as the closest thing in employment law to strict liability. The laws are so technical. And in many cases, while there certainly are unscrupulous employers out there, in many cases, employers are trying to do the right thing. But it's important to understand both on the federal level and the state and local levels, as we talk about frequently, that these technical rules must be known, must be understood, and must be applied. But that doesn't mean that employers have zero ability to proactively do what the employers themselves can do to maximize the likelihood of them paying accurately. Or put another way, doing what they can do to minimize the exposure and number of lawsuits that get filed against the company. That's why it is so important to have a policy and procedure to address complaints of employees, not only when it comes to EEO issues like harassment, discrimination, and retaliation, but when it comes to wage and hour issues. The employee who does not feel that they were paid accurately, either before or after seeing their paycheck. The employee who believes that somebody at the company, a manager or someone else, attempted to dissuade them from accurately reporting all time worked. So it's important, the takeaway is, for your organization to have such a complaint policy and procedure that includes wage and hour concerns. And among the key features of that policy and procedure, well, there are a few items. One, you want to certainly have a statement indicating the company's desire for employees to record all time that they actually work and that it's the company's intention to pay employees for all time they actually work. Number two, to set out an appropriate procedure and identify a designated individual or particular group at the company for employees to raise issues or concerns or complaints that they have on the wage and hour front. Ideally, you do not want to necessarily designate someone who is in the direct reporting line of the particular employees. So maybe it's somebody in HR, or if you don't have a full-fledged HR department, somebody else who is senior enough, but not necessarily somebody who's in the direct reporting line of that individual. And then in addition to that statement, and in addition to that actual procedure, you want to also have a statement in there that makes it clear that employees should also use this complaint process if they feel any pressure from anyone at the company trying to dissuade them from accurately reporting all time worked. If you have this kind of reasonable procedure established, and if you can show that you actually implemented and made it clear to employees that they needed to follow this procedure, it will in most cases serve to avoid significant exposure that these wage and hour cases tend to end up with. So that's all for today. Relatively short podcast episode, but an important enough issue that I wanted to discuss it with you tonight. Creating complaint policies and procedures that are broader than just EEO issues and that include wage and hour concerns. 
I hope you, your family, and your colleagues all continue to stay healthy and safe and well. I hope we get through this election process over the next few days and maybe the next few weeks um, safely and soundly. And at the end of the day, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Continue to email me or join me on Twitter at mschmidtemplaw. That's at mschmidtemplaw on Twitter. My email address is mschmidt at cozen.com. Please let me know if you have any suggestions, any thoughts on prior episodes that you've heard or future episodes that you'd like to hear. Your feedback is always appreciated, and I definitely use it to help plan future discussions. Until the next time, thanks very much again, and I hope all of your labor is productive.